Support for Terrestrial comes from the Evergreen State College, a public liberal arts college located in Olympia, Washington. Learn more about undergraduate and graduate programs in environmental sustainability, policy, and advocacy at evergreen.edu. When I first heard the term eco-anxiety, basically this chronic fear of environmental doom, I kind of brushed it off. I was like, okay, this is something for people who sit on their yoga mats and worry about how the world is going to end because we're not recycling enough, right? But there's actually a lot more to the relationship between our brains and the environment. As we humans continue to alter the world around us and the effects of climate change get worse, psychologists are finding that it's making people more stressed and therefore more likely to develop anxiety disorders, PTSD, depression, and problems with substance abuse. In the U.S., psychologists saw those kinds of reactions immediately after Hurricane Katrina and Superstorm Sandy. And in Australia, they saw it during the millennium drought that went on for more than a decade. Jenny O'Connell is a clinical social worker who treats farmers in a rural community two hours outside of Melbourne. It's been farmers killing their stock, and it's been farmers in denial or not knowing what to do. And some of those people have either succeeded or attempted to take their lives. And of course, the psychological burden is many, many times worse for people who are directly affected by climate change, like those farmers, or people who lost their homes during Hurricane Katrina, than it is for those who see these environmental crises happening from afar. The thing is, though, whether we're on the front lines or seeing these events unfold on social media, our brains perceive a very real threat, unlike anything our species has dealt with before. And the way the human brain is wired We just aren't built to handle it. Today, we're going to look at what eco-anxiety does to our brains. We'll hear more about the mental impact of that drought on farmers in Australia, and we'll also follow one man's psychological journey as he travels to a tiny island in the middle of the South Pacific to confront the devastating effects of plastic pollution. I'm Ashley Ahern, and you're listening to Terrestrial, a show that explores the choices we make in a world we have changed. I heard about Jenny O'Connell, the Australian social worker, from her daughter Kate, who's a friend of mine. We were talking about climate change and psychology, and Kate said, oh man, you got to talk to my mom. So when I called Jenny, she said that in the early 2000s, her area was hit by one of the worst droughts in Australia's history. One of Jenny's patients was a fifth-generation farmer. He saw his crops die, and, you know, there was nothing he could do except see this death around him daily. Um, Sometimes he would just plough in a new crop and hope for the best, and other times he would just live with the horror of seeing this, what he felt was of his failure. Jenny said the man felt this intense shame for letting down the generations of his family who had successfully farmed the land before him. So he became quite depressed and he describes being in the middle of his paddock one day, bawling his eyes out and a six foot three blokey tanker who was coming to collect some the crop um, came to him. His wife had said, look, I'm really worried about him. He's in the he's down in the paddock and, you know, can you help him? He just went and he said, this guy picked me up and gave me the hugest bear hug. And he said, all I did was sob. Eventually, after the drought, came rain. Lots of rain. 
So the man got his hopes up, but then his fields flooded and he lost another season of income. That was when he really hit a low point and became quite suicidal. He'd had a neighbour who had committed suicide and he was starting to think that's the only option. Researchers in Australia found suicide rates among male farmers rose 15% during periods of drought. The feelings Jenny's patient had are not unique. A recent study from the American Psychological Association found similar outcomes in communities affected by pollution and climate disasters all over the world. And there's plenty of evidence that low-income communities and people of color experience the worst of it. Among people living in the area hit by Hurricane Katrina, for example, one study found a significant increase in suicide rates. 30% of the study participants developed PTSD, and nearly half of them developed anxiety or depression. I mean, we are, after all, animals. We look at the environment around us and figure out how to survive. And when we see destruction, whether it's climate change, oil spills, forest fires, deforestation, I mean, the list goes on. It's not surprising that we react negatively. For a lot of people, the first impulse often is to hide from it or deny it or try to ignore it, if at all possible. But others move toward it. Well, I had, I had heard about this phenomenon that's happening there of these birds whose bodies are filled with plastic. Um, and as, as soon as I learned of it, I just felt this magnetic pull to go there. Chris Jordan is a documentary filmmaker who lives in Seattle. He's talking about the Lezan albatross, a seabird that nests on Midway Atoll, this remote sliver of land right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. When Chris first arrived on Midway, it wasn't nesting season, so all the birds were gone, flying thousands of miles over the ocean. So Chris and his team had the islands to themselves, and they started looking for the dead albatrosses they'd heard about. It didn't take long for Chris to find his first one, and he remembers what he saw when he opened up its stomach. It was a white ring of a, it, like the, the outside ring of a bottle cap right inside the rib cage of a dead bird. And I remember just this shock. And we, we filmed it and made a big thing of it. But that was just the beginning. And then there was another one right next to it and another one right next to it. And the amounts of plastic in many of these birds is just so astonishing. It's like the, a, a quart of plastic inside a bird whose stomach is supposed to be the size of a ping-pong ball. As he went around the island on that first trip, cutting open dead birds, Chris pulled out piece after piece of plastic. Slivers of containers and packaging, cigarette lighters, firecracker casings, even syringes with the needle still attached. And he took photo after photo after photo. And I mean, here he is on an incredibly remote island, surrounded by 60 million square miles of water. And to get to this place and to to see this horror, it's just, it's like I looked into into the stomachs of those birds and I heard this sound, just this horrible sort of wrenching, screaming sound or something like that. When I think about the way Chris describes the immensity and despair he felt on Midway, It reminds me of the Australian farmer Jenny O'Connell told me about, standing in an open field full of dead plants. So sometimes I'd feel rage, you know, I'd look look at the plastic in there and I'd just scream and pound my fists on the ground or or grab dirt and rub it in my hair or whatever thing. And, uh, but mostly I would, 
open up a bird and take out a handful of bottle caps and I would just dissolve into tears of, of grief. Chris came home from that trip and sank into a year of depression. I was in a state of overwhelm and hopelessness. I felt like I was too small to make a difference. I smoked way too much cannabis. I would be here in my studio, spend a lot of time on the internet, just random junk, and was lost and angry and alienated and felt really alone. Chris spent his days editing the photographs, looking through them again and again. Dead birds lying on their backs, their necks at odd angles, gray and white feathers interspersed with these brightly colored shards of plastic sticking out of their bellies. He shared his photos online and they spread around the world. People contacted him from all over the place saying how sad and angry they felt seeing his images. Because when we see images like that, or hear about farmers killing their livestock in drought-stricken Australia, even from a distance, it activates a specific part of our brains. It's called the amygdala, this almond-sized cluster of neurons that senses when we're threatened and triggers the fight-or-flight response. Jenny O'Connell, the Australian social worker, compared the amygdala to a smoke alarm. You know, the smoke alarm in our houses will go off even if we burn toast or burn something on the stove, because the smoke alarm in the house does not know the difference between burnt toast and the house burning down. And sometimes the smoke alarm in our brain goes off when the danger is not immediate, not for you at least, like when you see pictures of dead seabirds or read about climate change. Your amygdala perceives a threat, and that threat is real, but there's no quick solution. So when a farmer experiences the sense of threat, of fa- the feeling of failure, the feeling of helplessness, the feeling that I don't know what I'm going to do to survive this, um, those thoughts can set off the smoke alarm. The vision of seeing a dead crop or dying animals can set off the smoke alarm. And so the body goes into, it just automatically goes into a survival state. So Instinctively, we respond with fight or flight. But the problem is that those reactions don't help us cope with all the bad news we face in the modern world, because there is nowhere we can flee to, no way we can fight and immediately resolve it, so we feel anxious and depressed. And that's basically where Chris found himself for that whole year after he got back from his first trip to Midway, as he spent days in the studio editing these photos of dead birds. His amygdala was on high alert. Eventually, Chris decided that if he could get the photos out into the world as a book, maybe they would inspire people to take action and keep plastic out of the oceans. So he asked his friend, the writer Terry Tempest Williams, to put together an introduction that would get people fired up and give them hope that they could solve this problem. And she said, "Okay, we'll come and bring the photographs and we'll talk about it. So we went to visit her. And we looked at the photographs and cried together. And she said, I can't get you to hope from here. I feel just as hopeless as you do looking at these photographs. Terry told Chris she thought that his photos, and basically everything he'd seen on Midway so far, was just a sliver of the story. She said he had to go back. So he did. Chris says that seeing the albatrosses alive 
changed everything. And I'll never forget the moment, stepping off that plane and meeting a million of these incredibly magnificent, graceful, wild, sentient beings, and beginning to experience the other half of the story of Midway. At certain points in the nesting season, there are more than a million albatrosses on Midway Atoll. It is a raucous, joyful place. Birds coming back from the sea and greeting one another, parents crooning to their hatchlings. And that's what goes on 24 hours, even at night. To sleep on Midway, you have to wear earplugs because they sing and dance all night long. And they really do dance. The birds do mating dances, but they also dance just to greet each other when one of the pair comes home to the nest. Laison albatrosses mate for life, and the longer a pair is together, the more synchronized their dancing becomes. The couple stands face to face, ducking their heads and clacking their bills, lifting a leg here, cocking a wing there. Like these graceful mirror images of one another. And there are hundreds of thousands of them making these motions all over the island. They nest on the ground so you can walk among them, Chris says. It's kind of like walking around people in a park during a summer concert. The birds have no predators on this island, so they're not afraid of humans in their midst. They're not afraid of anything, really. You can go to the nests and and put your face right, like, a couple of inches away from the baby bird as it's hatching and smell and see, like, in, in amazing close-up intimate detail the 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 experience of it. And so we were able to film all of that. So that's the paradise part. And the the shocker is to know as you're standing looking out at the field of hundreds of thousands of them that every single one of them has plastic inside its belly. Albatrosses fly thousands and thousands of miles searching for food. Their bodies are designed to glide, like air hockey pucks, Chris says, just above the water, so they can just dip down to grab squid or clusters of fish eggs on the surface. And that's one of the ways they ingest plastic, is that the, the flying fish wrap their eggs around anything that floats. And so if they see an orange ball of goo, you don't know if in the middle of it is a, one of those little bladders from a, a piece of seaweed or a cigarette lighter. Chris ended up traveling to Midway Atoll eight times. He gathered hours of footage of the birds dancing, caring for their young, socializing, taking off from the dunes and floating out over the waves. And of course, he also has footage of how they die. One night at sunset, Chris was down on the shore and he spotted this young albatross who was just learning to fly. It was just this really beautiful fledgling bird sitting right on the shoreline. Chris was kneeling in the sand with the camera right at the level of the bird. And I realized that it was going to die. And its beak touched the sand and its head started to slowly lie down in its last gesture of life. And I started sobbing. Chris says that when he went back to Midway and witnessed the whole picture, how these birds live and how they die, something surprising happened to him. He still felt the grief he'd been feeling before. 
but he says he was able to let it sort of roll through him. And it actually gave way to a feeling he described as ecstasy. Because it brings us so deeply into the present moment. And it connects us with our love for whatever that thing is. Grief is the love we feel for something that we're losing or that is suffering. He thinks that in Western culture, we tend to hold grief at a distance. So when environmental events happen that have these really awful effects, like the drought in Australia or Hurricane Katrina, or even just when we scroll through our Facebook feeds or see photos of dead birds, we don't really let ourselves grieve. Because Chris says it's really frightening. So this is something we're all bearing. I think we're, we're swimming in, a, in an even bigger sea of fear. And as a result, instead of moving through it, finding the other side, we just kind of sit in that fear. And we may not even realize it. We just start to feel this weight, a constant buzz of anxiety or apathy. In researching this episode, I spoke with several psychologists, and they told me that people can't be problem solvers if they aren't fully present in their own minds. If we're overcome with anxiety and depression or feelings of helplessness, it can be really hard to even start to focus our attention and willpower on these giant problems like climate change. I asked Chris Jordan how he copes with those feelings now. I could give a whole list of good environmental things I do, but the truth is that none of them are nearly enough. And so for me, it's important to to not kind of pacify myself or convince myself that I'm, I'm doing enough. Like, I want to feel my anxiety. He says, that's it. That first, you got to face the source of the anxiety. Like, you got to face your own grief at how the world around us is changing. Because only then... Can you find ways to move forward? What do you do when you're feeling anxious or down about where things are headed on this planet? How do you cope with bad news on the environment? You can head over to our Facebook group. Just type in terrestrial and it should pop right up. And share your thoughts there with your fellow listeners. We'll share a link to Chris Jordan's full documentary too, so be sure to check it out. It is awesome. Terrestrial is edited by Annie Aviles. Our producer and sound designer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our theme music is by the band Tremor. And all the other music in this episode was composed by Komiku. Terrestrial was developed with support from the NPR Story Lab. We're produced out of KUOW in Seattle. I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks so much for listening. Support for Terrestrial comes from the Evergreen State College, a public liberal arts college in Olympia, Washington, providing an academically rigorous and individually tailored education, preparing students for lives spent serving, creating, and innovating. Learn more at evergreen.edu.